Poor old Mary Magdalene. She was the apostle to the apostle. She was the first to see the risen Christ. She pretty much bankrolled his whole ministry. She was a very wealthy woman. She was his best friend. And they had to repudiate her. And so by the time you got Pope Gregory, he made a speech pronouncing that she had been a whore. Okay, we're back. Catherine Wolf is here. We're talking about her fantastic book, Beyond How Humankind Thinks About Heaven. And to be true to my promise from last week, let me tell you about my experience with the Vatican and a cross and Catholicism. So when I was in ninth grade, I went to Kennedy Catholic High School as a punishment. We are not Catholic. I knew nothing about Catholicism when I entered into the school. I was hearing all of this stuff about the blood and the bread and the virgins for the first time in religion class in ninth grade. And it was very disorienting. So I also had my first girlfriend who I didn't lose my virginity to, but I almost did. She said, I would go to hell for you. Oh, dear. Which was so fucked up that I like couldn't even move on with the encounter. (laughs) So anyway, I've always had this soft spot for Catholicism because I found it at this time that was so tender for me. And it was so strange that it's maintained a fascination for me. When I was 27, I decided to go to mass every day during Lent. I did have like a spiritual experience because these are in beautiful places and you're experiencing a ritual that is thousands of years old. And so even if there is no God, this is an amazing thing that humans have done. I really felt that while I was doing that, I guess I would call it a project. And then when we went to Rome, my family and I took a trip to Rome a few years ago, and we went to the Vatican at my request. I really, really wanted to see the Vatican. In the gift shop, I bought some rosary beads that have been blessed by the Pope. For me, this was just a novelty, and I had it hanging in my kitchen for a long time. But then our nanny, the woman who takes care of our children during nap time and when I'm recording podcasts, her husband was a alcoholic who was so far gone that he was living in his car and on the brink of death. And I knew that he was a Catholic. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to give him these rosary beads, because maybe that will turn him around. Because for me, they're a trinket. But for him, maybe they'll mean something. So I went and I gave them to him. And he cried. And he went to an AA meeting that day. And he kept them in his car. I wish I could tell you that he turned it around, but he didn't. He passed away. It might have bought him some time. But these rosary beads were in his car when he passed away. They were with him when he passed away. And I thought that this is a miracle that I participated in, even though I don't believe in it. I was maybe the vessel for this miracle. I don't know if that's just a way of looking at the world or if that's reality or if it's a little bit of both, but it's very strange. So I have this weird relationship with the Catholic Church where I feel like I was a part of a miracle. Maybe that gave him some more time with his family that he wouldn't have otherwise had. And I think that's worth it in and of itself. And then the other side of this, and this is what I'm going to make you answer for, is that there were some abusive teachers in my life. And there were some abusive priests in that school. And some of my friends were caught up in this. And it's hard for me to talk about. It's weird for me to talk about on the podcast. Also, we don't know each other that well, but you're a therapist. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was definitely in the circle and in classes with people who are now in jail for abusing young boys. And so when I read about this stuff, and I think about what the church has done, and what the church did do to cover that stuff up, it really makes it difficult for me to think that any good could come out of such horrible people. So with that intro, let's... I am not on the spot, am I? (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) Just for the listeners, the reason that I felt comfortable talking about this and asking Catherine about this is in Timothy Egan's book, and also in your book, 
you guys talk about this, and this conversation is part of contemporary Catholicism. One of the many things I respect about Catholicism is that despite the fact that this was handled so poorly for so long, they are trying to own it today and trying to atone for it. Yes, yes, that is true to a certain extent. I mean, I say this as a person who's on our diocesan review board for these cases and have been for years, and they have made a legitimate attempt to be transparent about what happened and to get people the treatment they need and make amends where it's needed. And the board I'm on is top notch. I'm proud of that. What I really find lacking still, just to take a little page from AA, they need to do a fearless moral inventory. They don't need to say, we're going to change the rules. We're going to have review boards. We're going to pay amends. Fine. That's all things you do to make amends. But Tell me about examining how you who went through extraordinary theological education, who had wonderful retreats, had every sort of spiritual nourishment that you could want. How is it that you did not know how wrong this was? Tell me that you got to figure that part out. So I don't think they're halfway there. It's so funny because the answer to that is so obvious. A healthy sex life is part of spiritual nourishment. Being able to express yourself sexually in a way that you won't be judged and won't feel shame is part of a spiritual journey, and priests can't do that. And so it's unfortunate that they take it out in this horrific way, but if they had just been allowed to be gay or just be married men, yes, exactly, then this wouldn't happen. I mean, it would happen, but it would probably happen with the same incidents that it happens in the rest of the population. Exactly, exactly. And I know priests who really do live fairly saintly lives and who would never engage in such thing and for whom this is a terrible trial. But I do think there's a kind of stunting that goes on by removing women from one's life and always looking at them as a source of temptation and of evil. And that's so warping. And then you look at people who are able to engage fully in their sexuality and have children, have love in their life, and they bloom. We bloom. We become bigger and we have many more dimensions than a lot of these priests do, I'm afraid to say. Yeah, it's unfortunate. There's a great Clint Eastwood movie called El Camino where his wife dies and there's a young priest trying to console him. And he says, excuse me, I'm not going to take advice from a 27-year-old virgin. Oh, 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 oh that is real. I, I get it. I wouldn't either. <laughs> <laughs> so to get into your book, which is a fascinating, fascinating and detailed and amazing exploration of how humankind is conceived of the afterlife. So no small topic. I have a few questions for you. First of all, how did you get interested in this topic? I had done that other book and an editor who really liked it got in touch with me and said, do you want to read a book about heaven? And I fell on the floor. I mean, and my husband said, well, if you don't do it, I will. <laughs> and so I said, I'll try. And he said, go for it. Do some research. Let's put a proposal together. So I did. And then I had to say to him about two months later, heaven is actually a slice of how humankind has thought about whatever life beyond is. And so he said, Go find out what you can find out. So he really gave me free reign. And I became fascinated by the topic, which I had set aside, as a lot of human beings do, just because, as a friend of mine says, she didn't like to think about heaven because to get there, you had to be dead. <laughs> and so it was just his prodding that set me on this great project. And then I had to jump into this just morass of information <laughs> and try to figure out how to present it, how to control it. Do you know 
or have you known anyone personally who you're sure is in heaven now? Oh, of course. Just to draw from my faith in most a very familiar image is one from Hebrews called the cloud of witnesses so that we are part of this community of believers who have gone before, who are in heaven or wherever, and they're on earth and possibly even there to come. And so I very much have a sense, especially as I get older, that I am in that company already. Partly it has to do with a brother I was very, 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 very close to, who was a Jesuit for a very long time, then he left and got married. And we worked together for several years at Santa Clara. He and I had made a deal when we were really young that if one of us died first, we'd kind of make sure that the other one knew we were okay or that, you know, we'd try to come back in some way. I think he was indulging me. I was somewhat younger than he. But the thing is, is that from time to time, And not even when I try to bid him into my thoughts, he comes in the quietest sort of ways. And there were times during this book when I would say, hey, Bill, what would you think? And, you know, you don't get an email back, but you have a sense of presence. And I'll tell you this, I've never talked about this much. The thing is, when I started doing this book, Even on the Stanford campus where I live, where you think people are basically into science and would be skeptical about these things, I can't tell you how many people just kind of came up to me at a party or, you know, at a friend's house or whatever and just say, you know, I have this thing with my grandmother every now and then I feel she's there. Or people say, you know, then the couple of days after my husband died, I just felt like he was still there. And so these people were not being overly dramatic at all, quite the opposite. They were rather reticent, but they really wanted to tell somebody and they knew they could tell me because I was writing a book about it. And so I came to really credit my own experience more because so many people told me about these things. We have a thread on this podcast. I end up interviewing a lot of native writers. One of the common things is believing in the oral tradition and using that in conjunction with science. And I did an episode with Dr. Paulette Stevies, who is an anthropologist, but she took the bold step of incorporating some of the oral traditions of her people into her anthropology. And lo and behold, by following those things, she found stuff. And I think, of course, as a progressive liberal person, I think that's amazing. But then when I hear of religious people doing literally the exact same thing, it sounds silly to me. But as you were just saying this to me, I realized this is the same thing. You're taking something that was someone's actual experience and you're taking what they say at face value and trying to investigate it. It may lead you somewhere and it may not, but it's certainly worth taking seriously because it's not like one person has ever had an experience like this. Most people have had some experience like this. Yes, they have. And the whole oral tradition that takes place in so many societies and so many faith traditions, it has to do with remembering and passing down. And it's that cloud of witnesses I'm talking about. We carry the word down into future generations through the oral traditions. Yeah. And a lot of Catholicism, I guess it's written down somewhere, but a lot of it is just these traditions that there's not really incense in the Bible, but there's incense in every mass. Smells and bells, my friend used to call it. (laughs) So I think the nature of writing some metaphysical work of philosophy is that it's difficult to talk about, but there is a concrete factual through line. Can you Give us the Reader's Digest version of the history of human thought of the afterlife. (laughs) I'm glad to do this. I will say first, though, that the essential guiding belief was 
I came to realize as I looked at all kinds of traditions that people have been thinking about this for as long as we have any record or any evidence and we don't stop thinking about it. Even people who reject it, think about it. It's as though there's a reality that beckons to us. And I think Augustine himself said it wonderfully. He said, you've made us for you, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. We have a kind of response. And so you do start with the Neanderthals. 40,000 years ago, we have little grave goods. There's the very earliest glimmers that people were thinking beyond this world. If you look at the sociologist Robert Bell, he talks about the social interaction of very early peoples where play and nurturance became a vehicle for people to develop their imagination and also was a basis for society. I think it was the Egyptians, and I think it's about the second millennium BC, where we get in their wisdom texts and their myths and songs, this sense that there might be consequences for good and bad behavior and that those consequences will visit us when we move into the next life. And that's a signal change, actually, in human development. And then shortly after that, the travelers began. People started in all traditions to tell the stories. Of course, to them, they weren't stories. They were accounts of people like Gilgamesh or Muhammad or Elijah or Daniel or Enoch, people who went to heaven, usually the kind of realm of heaven and hell that the Western religions posit. And they tell what happened there and come back and tell us what it's all about. So that was a real turning point for me and my research because I thought, okay, now I've got my narrative thread here because it's the stories and these people have all gone there and come back. And it's important to note to 21st century listeners, I had to convince myself of it. These aren't stories, they are accounts. And the very fact that Viraz in Zoroastrianism or Muhammad in Islam could come back and tell this tale was proof to their audiences that it had happened. Factual proof. Wow. Yeah. I think about Gilgamesh, and it doesn't really make sense to write that down at a time when writing was so expensive and time consuming, unless it was really, really important. Exactly. Yes. And it was one of the earliest, I think it was the earliest recorded journey. And that's the one that comes down to us. You know, and then you got Revelations, John the Revelator. I mean, that's wild. (laughs) That's a wild vision of what's going on beyond. But then it doesn't stop. You know, you have Swedenborg who nobody thinks about, but he wrote these dream diaries where he would go off into some state, they call it a hypnagogic state at night and just go travel beyond. And then now today, I mean, I went to this place called the Monroe Institute, which is under the auspices of the University of Virginia, and went through a whole experience, you'll be interested in this as a musician, where for three or four days, we were sent on sort of musical journeys. We were in little pods where we had these beautiful, incredible sounds and harmonies and waves of sounds that would really take us far into our imagination. And these are people who believe that there are ways such as that to have out-of-body travel from this earth. So it won't surprise you to learn that I did some digging into Robert Allen Monroe. Yeah, that intrigued you, I bet. (laughs) Yeah, and he was a radio engineer. Yeah, Robert Allen Monroe was a radio engineer, the owner of the first cable company, alive from 1915 to 1995. And the thing that he invented that you experienced, I think, was hemisync, which is the sinking of the hemispheres. And this is Fascinating to me and will be fascinating to podcast listeners because we did an episode about Julian Jaynes's The Origins of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, which you probably read it. 
closer to when it came out, but we did an episode about it with Megan O'Giblin, who wrote a book called God, Human, Animal, Machine, which talks about parallels between essentially Christian eschatology and techno-futurism and how they are functionally the same. Brilliant book. But one of the things that Jane's talks about is the difference in hemispheres and that the imbalance in the hemisphere is actually what God is, that we are hearing these hallucinations from our right hemisphere, which doesn't have language, and it's filtering it through our left hemisphere, which has to explain these ideas somehow. And that that was the original idea of God, that we would see and hear literal hallucinations in our minds. You write beautifully about it in the book, but can you tell us a little bit more about your experience at the Monroe Institute? Because you weren't that impressed by it, it seems like. You know, I went with an open mind. I mean, I had to adopt an open mind in all of my interviews. With the Monroe experience, although it was beautiful and it was really cool to have a little sleep pod that you were kind of just being carried away with all this gorgeous music, I found that their worldview was not something that meshed with mine. And there was no sense of getting to a place where service to others was something that really opened you up to a kind of transcendence. And that's the heart of the Christian tradition. Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. And there was none of that, that is sort of pseudo Buddhist bent, which I thought they drew from in a way that could have been a little bit more reverent, respectful. Also, just what they taught was that people who did pursue a certain faith tradition would end up somewhere where they'd be pretty happy with Jesus or Muhammad or whoever, but they would never get to the higher consciousness. We'd be stuck in the Jesus Bardo, as they would say it. I thought, well, okay, <laughs> that's fine with me. <laughs> the way you described the Monroe Institute made it sound a lot like Scientology. There was a little bit of that feeling, but I have to say the people were lovely. They were all very smart. I mean, it was quite an extraordinary group, and you did not feel as though these were people who would necessarily be roped into something too wiggy, but they were really searching. It's interesting because when I was in my 20s, I guess I was a seeker and I really did study a lot of different religions. The one I settled on was just no religion. I just kind of lost interest in the question, really. You know, the question of who are we? Why are we here? What is the nature of the universe? At some point, I just realized I can't know and I, there's no reason to try to find out. There are things I can do that are tangibly positive and I should just do those things. Oh, yeah. Good. That's kind of where I landed. Well, you know, Kabir, who's a wonderful, I think, 16th century Hindu poet, said, seekers, listen, wherever you are is the entry point. That's your entry point. So I have some other hard questions for you. Okay, I'll try my best. <laughs> okay. Will priests who abuse children get into heaven? Ah, Okay. At the most basic level, I will quote to you a wonderful Jewish belief, which is that ultimately God forgives everybody because God is all loving and all forgiving. And it would be heresy to say that he would not forgive everybody. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. I also believe in repentance and forgiveness. And I have to hope that for many of these priests who did these things, that they have come to a sense of understanding what they did and have atoned for it and they have found a place to go beyond where they can receive a kind of forgiveness of themselves and maybe even change their ways around. It's such a difficult thorny thing. And it's such an odious thing even to consider. It's difficult. It really is. 
Yeah, it's really difficult. I had Bill Schultz on the podcast and he is a late in life convert to Catholicism and he actually became a monk for a brief time. But he told me, and I didn't know this, that the Jesuits in Northern California actually sold their property to pay settlements. They sold their monastery to pay reparations. Yeah, yeah, I'm not surprised. Well, and it's also, it's Georgetown that has now done this talk about a searching moral inventory. They were contacted by descendants of slaves that the Jesuit fathers had owned and kept as their slaves at Georgetown University. And they entered into this whole dialogue. They're making amends. Those are extraordinary things to happen. It's hard to forgive such a moralizing institution, such a huge moral failing. Yes, yes, it may not be possible, but we're not God. Yeah. What do you think that means if it's not possible? I mean, what do you think that means for the future of the Catholic Church? There's a reckoning happening right now. I think there will be a schism. There are very fervent, extremely conservative Catholics who want nothing to do with the opening up of the church and the tolerance of other beliefs and ways people live. And now even a glimmer of people who have different forms of sexuality, they don't want to go there. I think in 10 years, we'll see that church having broken off, whereas the rest of us really will be a much looser band, will be a community of believers. Women will be leaders, whether they're ordained or not. We already are leaders. And so I think some very interesting times are coming that way. I really do. Well, you think there's going to be a schism within the Catholic Church? Yeah, in the American Church. Is Pope Francis a little bit like some of our recent presidents where some people think he's amazing and some people think he's ruining the religion? Oh, absolutely. These people are virulently opposed to him to the extent that a very distinguished group of Catholic cardinals and leaders and writers got together two weeks ago for a rather quiet conference to try to speak out in a way that would rebut the arguments. I don't want to say combat because I hate that word and they don't think of it as combat either, but they want to present an alternative view of Francis. So that's in the work. So that's how far it's gotten. Where do you stand? Are you a Francis fan? Oh, yeah, I am. <laughs> I think he has his areas for growth. <laughs> He's a man of his times and of his culture, and his view of women is not as sort of broadly tolerant and sort of appreciative as I would like. But he is open and he's humble about it. And I have to say that that kind of misogyny is so baked into the Catholic Church that I wonder whether it will ever go away in the form that the church is in now. Yeah, you talk about in your book how that was a choice that was consciously made. Oh, yeah. Poor old Mary Magdalene. She was the apostle to the apostle. She was the first to see the risen Christ. She pretty much bankrolled his whole ministry. She was a very wealthy woman. She was his best friend. And they had to repudiate her. And so by the time you got Pope Gregory, and he may be Gregory the Great, but I'd have to look it up. But he made a speech pronouncing that she had been a whore. And that whole vision of Mary Magdalene is such grievous slander. And it has twisted the attitude towards women on the part of the clerical class ever since. I won't mince words on that. You didn't in your book and you didn't just now. To me, as a non-believer, it seems like the whole faith is that way. That's like, there's this text that you all 
just kind of arbitrarily decided on at some point, and that you can use it to prove basically anything you want, and that it's all superseded, or it's really such a vast library of information, that really who is presenting it has more of an influence on how it's perceived than what the actual text says. Exactly. So then what is the religion? Well, to go back to our last episode, you found Timothy Egan on his pilgrimage becoming more and more aware and open to these encounters that he has with real people and sometimes with an uncorrupted saint's body where he is moved in a way that his reason has not moved him. And that gives him a kind of ground for his faith to grow in. And so I really look at the experience of the faith. I honor the Catholic tradition. You can hardly separate it from Western civilization for 2000 years because they were the keepers of the intellectual tradition and imposed it on everybody else. But the thing is, is that, as you say, we reinterpret every age makes it their own. And we are in a very different age now. And that, too, the traditionalists will say, no, no, they're like these people who, you know, the originalists with the Constitution. But they don't understand that the word is living. The word is living and we reinterpret it. And if we do it in a prayerful way, in a community of believers, who's to say that's not valid? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect timing. <laughs> Catherine Wolf, thank you so much for joining us. When Catherine Wolf woke up this morning, she did not know that she was going to be defending the Catholic faith on this podcast. Oh, well, I hope I did a good enough job. <laughs> Thank you for indulging my somewhat aggressive questions. I don't really get aggressive on this podcast that often. We're not usually talking about contentious things. We're just talking about interesting ideas. But I'm so glad to have you here, and I'm so glad that you were up for it. So thank you for doing that. I'm up for it. We can continue the conversation sometime if you like. I would love to. So before I let you go, I've got to ask you the last question I ask everybody, which is to recommend two books to our listeners. Oh, boy, I have so many. I mean, there's some obvious ones like the Norton Anthology of Religion, which gives you all the basic text. That's fine if you're a scholar. Let me add to that recommendation a book by Barbara Bradley Haggerty called Fingerprints of God, where she explores modern neuroscience in terms of how they're looking at these sorts of experiences, what might be happening in the brain, what they can map, what they can't. I really recommend it. Probably the two books that really moved me along in my understanding of faith and of the possibilities of life beyond were William James's Varieties of Religious Experience, which is luminous, which is where he tries to apply science to religious experience. And the other one is a book called The Sabbath by Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. He speaks in that book about the Sabbath time, and he contrasts it to the time the rest of the week, which is where we're involved with everyday things. We march, your times inexorable, hours go by, and in the Sabbath, you stop, and you live in God's time. It is a beautiful, beautiful evocation of that Jewish tradition, but it also very much dovetails with Kabir, the Hindu, who says, seekers, wherever you are, is the entry point that wherever you are, you can take the time, you can get out of time. That's when you become a mystic. And that's when you can leave this whole Meshuggah <laughs> that we're in right now and go someplace else. I think the Catholic lady saying Meshuggah is a great way to end the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> My booby would be proud of you. Thank you so much. 
Catherine Wolf, thank you so much for joining us. Her book is Beyond How Humankind Thinks About Heaven. It's fantastic. Everyone should get it and read it, buy a copy for your friends. It's a great book to buy people for Christmas because they're thinking about the afterlife and so on. Oh, sorry. I have one question for you. And don't think about it too much. Favorite Pope, go. Favorite Pope in history. Oh, it's really between John the 23rd and our wonderful Francis. But for now, because I'm alive, it's Francis. Well, how lucky we are to be living in the time of your favorite Pope. My guest next week is Dr. Ruth Behar. She's an anthropologist, but she's also an author for adults and young adults. We're going to talk about The Hundred Dresses by Eleanor Estes, which is a children's book. If you want to read this one before that podcast, it will take you like half an hour. Check it out. It's really cool. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. It's very important. It really helps the show out. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the section where it says rate and review. Hopefully you're going to select five stars and maybe write us a nice review. Or if you don't like the podcast, write us a bad review. That's fine too. Thank you so much for listening. The Book Society podcast is produced by me, Lucas Cantor. You can reach us at Book Society Pod on Instagram. Also, Book Society Pod at gmail.com if you want to send a direct email. Santiago Ramones is the co-producer and also definitely edits the show. He has his own podcast called Bit Depth. It's really good. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. I would say Clement III is my favorite poem. Oh, good for you. We'll have to talk about that sometime. <laughs> <laughs>